I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Back in July 2020, I hosted here on Slow Mo an incredible thinker, a very successful author and international speaker who took us through a journey in terms of understanding consciousness, Mark Gober. If you have not listened to that episode, July 2020, it was definitely one of my favorite conversations of the first year of Slow Mo. He wrote a book that's called An End to Upside Down Thinking in 2018, which was awarded the IPPY Best Science Book of 2019. And he, in that book, basically discusses that consciousness is pervasive. It is the underlying reality of everything and that we receive this like antennas we receive consciousness through our physical experience in this physical universe and it's not the other way around that death is not the end of our consciousness it's basically this connection from this body and it definitely was an enlightening conversation simply because mark uses facts and data. He is originally, like you and I, professional in finance, and he worked in the mainstream world, believing in doing things the way we all do it. And then he woke up one day and said, through listening to a psychic analysis of something, that there is more to us than our physical form. In 2020, he wrote An End to Upside Down Living. And today, we're going to be talking about the most unexpected topic, an end to upside down liberty, a book where he discusses how the current government system is actually not empowering of freedom and uses examples from the last couple of years to speak about that, but also that it is not a system that is in line with our nature as spiritual beings. Very, very interesting and unusual topic. So I hope that this episode, this conversation will be as life-changing as ours in uh, 2020 has been. And it's always a pleasure to have Mark back for another wonderful conversation. He's also the host of the podcast, Where Is My Mind?, which was launched in 2019. And he serves on the board of the Institute of Noetic Sciences and the School of Wholeness and Enlightenment. Always an engaging conversation. I'm looking forward to this one with Mark Gober. So how have you been? You've really done a lot of coverage with the end of upside down thinking, the end of upside down living. And I felt you had an interesting grasp on a topic that is really important for so many of us. And yet you're now talking in your new book about something completely different. Actually, for those who haven't enjoyed my conversation with Mark back in July 2021, it's definitely been one of my favorite conversations on slow-mo. Please don't miss it. Go back and listen to it so that you know where Mark is coming from 
how he changed his career, how he focused on spirituality, consciousness. One of the best conversations that I had, I had on consciousness, on slow-mo. But now you want to talk about liberty and politics and government and what's going on. Indeed. Yes. I never really thought I'd be talking about these topics or really interested in them. I, I never had much of an interest in politics. I was focused on sports growing up. I was on the tennis team in college, and then I was in business, investment banking, working in Silicon Valley. Um, I was kind of laser focused on whatever was immediately in my world. And when I left my firm right before the pandemic, I wanted to focus full-time just on researching. I wrote my second book, An End to Upside Down Living, which would focus more on spiritual topics, the awakening process that we go through, consciousness, the brain, what are the implications? But the world changed over that period of time. So I wrote that book early in the lockdown period. And then I had a lot of time to research and was looking at what was going on in the world. And as I did that more and more, I uncovered things that I thought were very important and which also actually do tie to the prior work on consciousness. And I hadn't seen that link made before. So I thought there was a need to try to bring things together of how do we think about organizing society politically and economically in the context of this interconnected consciousness? Yes, I want to leave that bombshell later in the conversation because I actually have to say, I never expected that. I am, and you brilliantly draw the link between how our societies are organized versus how it should be organized based on consciousness and your approach to consciousness. But let's begin with what's wrong with today's society? Why do you think even there is a need to change? That's a rhetorical <laughs> question, by the way. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, much of what I've talked about in my prior books and my own podcast series is this upside down thinking, the idea that we are not just a hunk of matter where consciousness comes out of our brain. And when our brain turns off and when our body dies, there's no consciousness anymore. That's one of the big meta paradigms I think that needs to shift because there's a lot of science suggesting it's incorrect. So that's one just idea that much of society doesn't really hold. I mean, I know this from my educational background. We're taught that life is essentially meaningless and we just have to live with it. I now think that's incorrect. So <laughs> <Yeah>. that's <laughs> a paradigm shift. But the one that is more unexpected is, is thinking about the governing structure of society. We're born and there's a government. And the government, as we're taught, is our protector. It's there to provide services that are very important. Legal services, roads, police, these are all very important things in society. And politicians are there as public servants to help us. And it's this very idealistic view that we're given. And I think it's, we don't even think about it that much because every country in the world has this government structure. Some are more oppressive than others, but it's the same basic structure of this organization that rules society. It sets laws and you obey the laws. And that structure is what I'm questioning. And I'm not challenging the functions of the structure. They're very important. But what I'm challenging is the fundamental nature of the way in which government is inherently oppressive. Inherently oppressive. Inherently oppressive. Inherently a danger to our individual liberty. And that is the shift. Whoa. But that, hold on, because, I mean, you're recording from where in the U.S.? <laughs> in Maryland right yeah, now. So the land of the free, the idea of democracy, the idea that we're always, always going to be empowered by a government that has those human rights and unalienable truths that we have the right to be free and to, isn't that what we're always told? I mean, I grew up in Egypt where I wasn't told I can be free. I was told the boss is Mubarak. You have to listen to Mubarak. 
And in an interesting way, I uh, accepted it. I was like, okay, not a problem I can resolve. So I'm going to focus on other things in life today. And I have to be very open and honest with what you see in terms of how governments sort of force policies around COVID and vaccination and so on and so forth, nothing for or against. But it reminds me a lot of the Mubarak years where you're told to do things and if you don't do them, we're going to make your life very difficult. And so it's not really the freedom that we have heard in the slogans. So you're saying this is oppressive inherently, any government is. That's a big statement. Elaborates before both you and I go to jail. Yeah. Well, I never thought I'd be talking about things like this again. It's just the more I research, the more I realize that there are fundamental issues. And when I say inherently impressive, I mean, there's a spectrum. So there are clearly oppressive governments that we hear about throughout history. So the most extreme examples like Nazi Germany, yeah. uh, North Korea, Soviet Union, those are what we read about in the history books. But even if we look at America, where I, I've grown up and I do agree there are many freedoms afforded to us. If you look at the early days of America, there were many more freedoms, and over time they have been eroded, where the government has taken more control over people's lives. And some of us, we don't necessarily feel them very much, but like you said, in the COVID era, there's more of a sense that the government decides what risk we can take as individuals, and it sets policies that we might not even agree with individually or morally. So that is a problem when you have an institution that can essentially define morality and also hand out freedoms. It goes counter to the spiritual principle that we are inherently free beings because we're part of an interconnected consciousness. Freedom doesn't come from a third party, and yet that's the kind of rhetoric we hear more and more. If you do this, then we will grant you these freedoms as if this third party is supernatural and has that ability. Mm. Which I find quite shocking to be honest i visited amsterdam at the end of this summer and the dutch are a very very conscious society and conscious in terms of their liberties and their rights and they have the right to be direct and say what they feel like and i love everything about being dutch to be quite honest i actually even love the extreme directness but then when i was there launching scary smart my last book i had to basically eat at home or queue outside a small restaurant next to the Airbnb I had because I wasn't vaccinated and I had zero right to do anything other than barely stay alive while I don't know if that's called freedom. And I don't think even the Dutch community itself fully accepted that. And that's, I think, just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I'm sorry you had to go through that. When I hear these stories, it's very upsetting because we see that the structure has been in place for a long time that could have allowed it. And that's what I mean by inherently oppressive. Even if we haven't felt it in many countries, the structure that we've accepted as being acceptable has the potential to turn into this and where could it lead in the future. And that's why I felt so called to try to break apart what is government. And I hope we can talk about that today. What are the features of government that allows it to get there? So when you're saying the structure we put in place is leading there, what elements of that structure? I mean, let's talk about what government is supposed to be and what it actually is. What elements are in the design of government that are actually not working for society? Well, there's a notion of a, a social contract that the people in society allow there to be a government, even if it means us giving away some of our freedoms so that we can have a safe place, essentially. So people talk about this as a rationale for government. But when we think about it, 
that's an abstraction. There is not a formal contract. And that to me is, this is the crux of the matter. Because the government provides services. Government provides police services, services with the roads, et cetera, important services. But unlike other service providers, there isn't an explicit contract that explains what the service provider will do, what happens if it fails to meet its obligations. The government has the ability to essentially change the rules of the game in the middle of the game, as Hans Hermann Hoppe, an economist, said. And there's nothing about termination in there. So if, if we think about a typical service provider, Netflix, our gym, my clients, when I worked in business, there were things specified. And you think that for something as important as government, as, as important as its functions, that we would have such an explicit contractual relationship. And the fact is, we have an implied consent. And that is where the issue comes in. It's not fully voluntary. And when it's not fully voluntary, you could end up in situations where you're forced to do things that are beyond your individual consent, which on a spiritual level for me is highly problematic. Let me try to see if I understand this correctly. We elect politician A because politician A says, I'm going to do this to taxes and with the savings or with the gains, I'm going to do that to the road infrastructure. And then politician A does none of it at all. And there is no contractual agreement that says you're falling short, you need to either compensate everyone or be penalized for your lack of performance. We basically have an implicit agreement that says, okay, thanks for promising. Sorry that you didn't deliver, but it's life. Yes, exactly. And so there's no accountability. If a service provider fails to perform in business, let's say you go to the store and the apples that they sell are really rotten. People are going to stop buying apples. And if the rest of the food in their store isn't tasting good, people aren't going to come to their store anymore. Then what happens? They go out of business. Now, that doesn't work with government because government is obtaining its revenue no matter what via taxation. So taxation then becomes a problematic structure because we are essentially forced to pay for things that we might not want to pay for. And imagine a situation in which the government is doing something, let's say it's in the middle of a war, that you personally find it to be immoral, and yet you're forced to pay for that war through taxes. And if you don't, you go to jail or your assets are seized, etc. It's not as if we get to check off all the things that we want to pay for and the amounts that we're going to pay for all of those things. We don't have that. So some would say that taxation is actually a form of coercion, or at the most extreme level, it's a form of theft of your property, and you don't have a choice in the matter when you're within a certain jurisdiction. That is so true when you think about it. I mean, in an interesting way, I worked in the U.S. for a, not in the U.S., I was always based in Dubai, but I would spend more than 100 days in the U.S. Uh, every year because of my work at Google. And so Google actually used to pay my taxes in the U.S. And when I think about it, as a non-resident foreigner, they called it, when you think about it, I shall never be using the road infrastructure that's built over the year. I really didn't approve of bombing others and I will never benefit from the healthcare. But somehow, even though I'm not even a citizen of the US, I'm sort of ranting here. I have to pay for things I don't approve of, especially the part of war. It doesn't matter where the war is. I don't approve of war. I don't want to fund a killing machine. And so call it defense or call it offense doesn't make any difference. And, and so somehow government will make that choice and you have no say in it. But I think what you're, what you're really inverting here, again, like you always do end of upside down thinking, is you want to call government a service provider 
While in reality, most of us grow up to, to believe that government is the boss. How can you justify that? Yeah. Well, we want to see it as the boss or the, the mommy and daddy uh, structure that's going to take care of us. And what I'm, what I'm arguing, the more I look at government and break down what it actually is, it is a service provider. It provides us with services, but it doesn't function in the way a normal service provider does. It has special privileges. It has exemptions. Larkin Rose, a political philosopher, he says, government has an exemption from morality. It is able to do things that no normal citizen could do. So it can say, you have to pay me for this, whether or not you find it to be moral, even though we don't have an explicit contractual relationship. And if you don't, then you're going to jail, for example. If a normal citizen did that, that would be potentially illegal. So there are things, or, you know, we think about war. Um, war could be considered a form of mass murder. But if we look at it from the traditional lens that we're taught, well, it's a form of just protection, et cetera. So all of these things that we're taught to look at in a benevolent way, they could be flipped around to be looked at in a more malicious way. And that's what I'm, I'm hoping to at least consider the other side of this, because when government goes wrong, things go really wrong. And that's my concern these days on a global scale. So let's list down the issues. The issues is they are a service provider that's not providing the service. They are a revenue collector that actually dictates exactly how much you're going to pay and you have no escape from that. And they make the choices of what services will be provided without consulting with the customer, which is you and me. And at the end of the day, if those services disagree with you, you're still forced to pay for them. What else is wrong? Well, the theory behind government, if we go back to the early political philosophers, basic political theory, like Thomas Hobbes, talks about the need for a Leviathan state that will keep us in check because human beings, according to some, are inherently irresponsible and warlike. And therefore, we need a governing structure to take care of us. And that's the rationale. But if we break that down, let's think about it. If human beings really are irresponsible and warlike, Government is a subset of those people. So yes. we're going to take a subset of irresponsible and more like people and put them in this position of essentially unilateral decision-making authority over us. But we say, no, no, it's okay, Mo, because we're going to elect them. So we, who we've already defined as irresponsible and warlike people are somehow going to know who to put into power over us. To me, it's inherently problematic. It's inherently suboptimal because we're putting on a platter this potential for a power structure to eventually become oppressive. Okay, but I asked you to tell me what is working and what is not. We spoke only about what is not. I mean, I don't know. I mean, do you want to live in a world that has no government, no police, no even defense? If I think about it, as much as I don't want anyone in the world to carry a gun, if someone carries a gun, then perhaps your country's military should carry a gun too. So in case there is offense, you can defend yourself. So what are they doing right in your view? I mean, we cannot live without those things. Right. So the structure that I lay out in the book as an alternative to this government structure, it's known in some political circles as voluntarism, where the government, what is now government, turns into a set of true service providers. So the functions don't disappear, but people pay for them on a voluntary basis. Uh-huh. So imagine that we have the current government structure. You pay for the things that you want to pay for. And then it becomes completely consensual and voluntary. What would happen to the government then? It would probably shrink a lot because there are a lot of services people wouldn't pay for and a lot of the inefficiencies would go away. Pricing would have to adjust. So this is ultimately a, a highly free market solution that I, I talk about and I get into the economics of this in the book as well. But that would introduce the accountability 
that government lacks. Would it be perfect? No. What I argue, though, is that it would be a relative improvement. And this is where it becomes really difficult to think about. And I've had to just go through so many cycles in my mind about this. It's still problematic, but it solves for many of the problems that government will inherently have. Plus, I argue, this system, or even our current system, will ultimately have really big problems if we don't move to a spiritual perspective also. So for me, it's both turning the functions into a true service providers and having the spiritual metaphysics collectively together to get us into a much more free society. And I'm thinking about this long term. I don't see this happening tomorrow. So let's take them one by one. So the idea of a service provider, interestingly, I see a live example of that. So I've lived in Dubai in the UAE for a long time. And you wonder how a government like the Emirati government would be able to survive without collecting taxes. Some people think it is because of oil and so on. Of course, you know, the government, which is, I think is an incredible entity here in Dubai and the UAE in general, they really treat the country a bit like a business. So they, you know, they encourage tourism, they encourage trade and so on and so forth so that there are sources of income. But when it comes to taxes, I, as a citizen or as a, as a resident, I sort of pay for what I use. So it's not exactly what you're describing, which is, okay, we're going to build a road who wants to participate. They sort of go and say, okay, we're building a road. If you want to use it, you're going to pay for it. We're building a, some kind of a service. If you want to use it, you're going to pay for it. To be able to live here, you need to have a residence visa. If you want to use it, you're going to pay for it and so on. Is that what you have in mind? Well, I think in part, but I'm thinking of these organizations as private businesses, and they might be all in one where there might be a road service provider that also provides security services, sort of like government, but each service would have to be voluntarily agreed upon. Whereas currently with governments, there is this umbrella of control, and that means the government can define its own morality with its laws. And I'm not saying there would be a lawless society, but that the rules would be set up on the basis of individual private property. And there could be private property that you subscribe to, like a community, but it would be fully consensual and voluntary. Whereas right now, it's not a fully voluntary system because we put the structure in place that has the power to do things without an explicit contract. But then how do you deal with things like internal affairs and security, right? We know, for example, that the jail system in the US, because it's privatized, is encouraged to actually maximize the number of prisoners, Whether that's good or bad, maybe it's good in the first 20, 30, 40% of the prisoners that are in there because they actually need it to be away from society. But then maybe the others that are coming in and kept in, there has been many documentaries and books about the topic, are actually just the result of capitalism, result of a private entity wanting to maximize its services so that it can maximize its revenue. So the way I see it is that when you have a fully free market, right now, When we talk about capitalism, it's in the context of within the government umbrella. So it's not fully free. The government is still intervening, even though we have some freedoms within the economy. So the government is able to steer things in its targeted direction. When it's fully free, in theory, if companies start to act unjustly, or they start to do things that people wouldn't want to engage with, customers would move away from it. And there would be an incentive for an entrepreneur to create a better structure that people want. And that's how I see the forces working, where the financial incentive will create opportunities that meet people's needs. Whereas with the current prison system, yes, it is privatized in certain ways, but in other ways, it's still associated with the government and it's not a fully competitive system where you have 
only private entities working. So this is known as the, the Austrian School of Economics. Uh, there's an institute, Mises, Ludwig von Mises is the one who is known for this. And when you have a fully free economy, in theory, the market will correct for many of these things. It doesn't lead to perfection, but the negative aspects would not be desirable to consumers. And therefore, an entrepreneur could step in and do financially well by servicing the community. But you still haven't answered me on, on how can we ensure that those services are fulfilled. So if crime increases, everyone looks to the government's iron fist to simply say, okay, I'm going to push down on crime. If it's a private entity and they don't get the funding, what do you do about that? Well, it, the responsibility is on the private entity. And that's really what I'm talking about is where the responsibility is much more on the individuals. This is why, again, it's far out in the future, which I think aligns with spiritual principles that we have to be more individually responsible. But it would be the responsibility of the private property owner to hire security, to pay for that service. Uh -huh. And if they can't, then that private property will be not very secure. And what does that mean? People will not want to engage with that private property as much, so it won't be as well-funded. So this is where I see the market essentially self-correcting. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. But the way I always look at it is, well, what's the alternative? The alternative is this oppressive government structure. Does it do so well with security? Are the police services so good? Are they able to service people very well? And what we find, and I've had to deconstruct this in myself, is that there are so many problems in our current structure that we are just accustomed to. So we let them go. And when we think about this alternative, we live with it. But we think about this theoretical reality in the future. It is theoretical. We think about the problems. And we say, oh, I wouldn't be able to deal with that because it's not so real. When in fact, we're dealing with a lot of problems right now. I agree with that. Let's talk about the spiritual side of this. I think that's really a key component to, to the conversation. So you're saying that the government of today does not allow with the reality of what we are spiritually. And I remind people once again, please listen to my conversation with Mark back in July, 2020, because Mark's view is that we, our physical life is really just a sort of a offshoot of universal consciousness, if you want. That consciousness is primary and that we come into this physical form to have an experience that allows us to learn and then go back to the source. And as we go back to the source, we all learn. And then maybe there are multiple journeys and so on. And I encourage everyone, by the way, please go back and listen to it. It's an amazing conversation. Mark, first of all, fill us up a little bit about your view of this. And then how does it relate to the issue of government? Well, the issue of government happens within the context of the nature of reality. How do we organize society? Does it even matter if we organize society well or not? Because if life is random and meaningless, then okay, if we become enslaved and if there are atrocities in the end, we're all going to be dead anyway, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why this metaphysical conversation is so important. It sets the stage for why should we even think about government? But my overarching hypothesis theory that I've talked about in the past so much with my books and my podcast series is the idea that consciousness, which is our sense of experiencing life, the part of us that experiences our, our awareness, that that doesn't come from the brain, it doesn't come from the physical body, but rather our body and our brain are like antennas or a filtering mechanism for a broader consciousness. So we are vessels. We are not the producer. We are the experiencer of consciousness. Consciousness flows through us. Correct. And the analogy I like to give comes from uh, Dr. Bernardo Castrup, a philosopher. He says, imagine that there is an infinite stream of water where water is like consciousness. Each of us is a whirlpool within that stream. 
So we are both individuals. There's a Mark and a Mo who are separate, but at some level we are interconnected. True. And that's the the general theory. The way I arrive at that is looking at many phenomena you've looked at as well. So the reality of psychic abilities, water from one whirlpool getting into another whirlpool. There's a ton of scientific evidence for that. And then also the idea that when a whirlpool stops being a whirlpool, the water just flows back into the broader stream. By analogy, when our body dies, our consciousness doesn't die. It simply transforms into a different state. And there's a lot of evidence to back that up too. But that's the general picture that I use to look at government politics and why it matters. Why does it matter? Okay. So there's a phenomenon known as the near-death experience, which you've covered on your show as well, which I think starts to hint at what the meaning of life is. And this also occurs in many other types of mystical experiences, but the near-death experience has some particularly interesting features. So a near-death experience is when a person has some kind of bodily trauma, for example, let's say cardiac arrest. The person is in a form of clinical death. They should not be able to have a lucid consciousness, and yet they do. So Dr. Pim Van Lommel, who I know you interviewed oh, yeah. on your show, he did one. Of, he's incredible. I interviewed Amazing. him as well. He, yeah. he did a landmark study in the Lancet Journal, a highly respected journal, where he looked at people that have had cardiac arrest and evaluated how many of them had near-death experiences during that time when their brain should not be capable of producing anything, let alone a complex lucid experience where people are immersed in unconditional love. Sometimes they see things from a vantage point outside their body or they encounter mystical beings. I mean, these require lots of processing to even consider. And in his study, roughly 18% of the participants who had cardiac arrest came back describing a near-death experience. Even more than that, there are cases, they're known as veridical out-of-body experiences, and these are where a person is hovering over his or her body, sometimes actually hovering outside the room too, but after being resuscitated, comes back and said, oh, well, this the doctor did this, this, and this, and the doctor says, whoa, 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 how did you know that? Especially from that vantage point, you couldn't have seen it, and you were, you were clinically dead. So the reason I mention that is these are not hallucinations by definition. If they come back and describe something that is accurate, that's not a hallucination. There's actually a great book on this. It's called The Self Does Not Die, and it documents over 100 of these cases. And these are very difficult to document, and they probably happen more than this, but where the person comes back, they're able to verify the accuracy. There should be zero of these cases, and they, they pop up all over the place. So that's a long way of saying that what happens in the near-death experience might be telling us something about the nature of reality itself, rather than just some hallucination caused by a dying brain. It's actually the reverse, that the brain is getting in the way of the broader stream of consciousness. <laughs> and when we get the brain out of the way, we learn a lot. So what is one of the things that we learn? There's a phenomenon in the near-death experience called the life review, where people relive their lives in a flash. And Dr. Bruce Grayson, who I know you also interviewed, and I had a great conversation with him too, in his new book, After, he says that roughly a quarter of the near-death experiences he studied have included a life review. Another example is Dr. Jeffrey Long, a radiation oncologist who has a database of near-death experiences. He found that roughly 20% of people who have a near-death experience report a life review. So this is happening pretty frequently when you multiply it over millions of cases. This is a potentially serious phenomenon. And for me, it's been life-changing to even think about. In the life review, people relive events from their life, not only through their own eyes, but also through the eyes of the people they impacted. Yeah. I think about that. I mean, if that's real to any extent, that's a big deal. So it's a form of empathy that we can't even 
it's hard for us to think about because we're separate. But when the when consciousness is liberated, somehow we're able to re-experience things. And when I interviewed a man named Daniel Brinkley, who has had four near-death experiences, each time he had a life review, he told me that when he relived his combat days in Vietnam, he not only felt the death of the person that he killed through that person's eyes, but he felt the pain of children that would no longer have a father. Even though he didn't feel it quite as strongly, he felt the indirect effects. So what is the significance of all this and tying it back to politics? The idea is that the golden rule of treating people the way that we want to be treated and ultimately moving toward a state of what many say is unconditional love, that's what's described in all these experiences. That's the moral compass. And what Dr. Grayson says in his new book is that it's actually beyond morality based on the people that he's interviewed, the many people he's researched. It's natural law. That's the term he uses. Natural law. Okay. So if there are these natural laws built into the nature of reality, and the golden rule is one of them, which is that we have a desire to treat people well. Why? Because we are that person at some level. We're interconnected. So if I harm you, I'm harming myself. A corollary to that, and this is getting into politics now, is it would not make sense to want to initiate aggression upon any person or his or her private property. And what do I mean by aggression? Aggression could be physical violence. It could be theft. It could be coercion, extortion fraud, because that violates the golden rule. You wouldn't want to do that as an individual. So on a societal level, we have a structure that does those things inherently because we don't have full contractual explicit consent. So to me, as someone who's really got into the spiritual thing, and now I live by these principles, how could I endorse a system that is doing these things all the time, even though it might be subtle and we say, oh, it's just an economic policy that's going to hurt certain people and help certain people without their consent. And the people that are hurt, well, they're just going to have to live with it. To the more extreme cases where you're mandated to put something in your body that you don't want to put in your body, that's a serious thing that I, as a spiritual person, wouldn't endorse. The structure of government as we do it now, I would argue, violates those principles. Whereas a voluntary society with explicit contractual consent, even though it will not be perfect, would be in line with spiritual principles and values. I love what you said. Of course, a lot of people who know me will know that I study a lot of spiritual teachings, a lot of religious teachings. I just am super curious about all of them. And there are a few, I mean, I would say every single spiritual teaching agrees to that golden rule, treat others as you want to be treated. Having said that, the alternative in some of them is not a self or a voluntary self-appointed set of individuals as a government, but rather a government that respects that rule. A government that basically says, I will treat citizens not even as I want to be treated, but as they want to be treated. And there has yes. been examples of fair governments, I'm sure across society, but in the Islamic world specifically, there was a, a government of a ruler called Omar ibn Abdul Aziz, which was basically, I think, a thousand years or something after Prophet Muhammad. And he ruled by that. He basically ruled by the idea of, I'm going to be fair in terms of offering what the citizens actually want. Uh, didn't rule for, for long, as you can imagine. But, uh, you know, it, it, it is doable somehow that we could actually have some kind of an elected government or some kind of an assigned, even hired government that keeps that in mind. Wouldn't that be an easier alternative? Yes. Well, if it's a hired government, then it would be a service provider, which to me would be a, vo a fully voluntary system. The question is, is it 
as quote unquote government, one in which there is not an explicit contractual relationship. Could that ever work? Which is around the world, we are saying yes. To me, it's idealistic to think it can work. Now, imagine that we live in a world where everyone is, or many people are very spiritual. I think there would be a higher likelihood of it working. But I talk about this in my second book, An End to Upside Down Living. Spiritual teachers or gurus who reach very high levels of enlightenment, they're at the state of unconditional love, they're acting very morally. What does happen sometimes is that they can become corrupted. And the three things that typically corrupt are money, sex, and power. It's known as the fallen guru syndrome, where the guru all of a sudden is sleeping with a student, for example, or laundering money. Something overcomes that person. So it's like in this universe in which we live, there is one level of reality. Some would call it the absolute, where it's one consciousness, unconditional love. But there is the relative level of reality. There's a me and a you. There's a separation. And there's also what you might call good and evil. There's corruption and morality. There are two sides of it. And when we live in this relative reality, there is the potential to tap into that darkness somehow. It always exists. So the argument that I make, and it's a subtle one, is that if we eliminate the structure of compulsory government and make it voluntary explicitly with contract, it would be more difficult for that corruption to creep in. Because let's say you have someone that is in your hired government, let's say, who becomes corrupt for whatever reason then there would be a much easier way to get out of that contract because of the way the contract's set up and let's say you wouldn't pay them anymore. So there'd be more of an incentive not to become corrupt. And that's the argument I make. I, in the book, I call it non-dual voluntarism, meaning the highly spiritual one consciousness as our metaphysics with the contractual voluntary government together. I love what you're saying. I, and I think in my mind, I'm listening and, and thinking, the resistance in me is this is not doable. I mean, <laughs> how do you foresee a, a transition from where we are today to something like that? That's the big question, Mo. <laughs> I don't know how it would happen. And there are many people who have theorized, well, maybe it will be gradual, maybe it will be sudden. The way I talk about it in my book is that the first step is to have this awareness. Because for me, it's been it's been life-changing, even though I had this spiritual awakening, to recognize that we live under a structure that is threatening to our individual liberty as spiritual beings and to realize, wait, now I'm a spiritual being who's free no matter what. And I'm not just going to disobey the government because we have to play by the rules right now. It's not smart to just say, I'm not going to listen. That could be harmful. But to have that awareness in my consciousness, what I argue is, I, what could that do on a mass scale if we start to realize, well, no, we can't be forced to put that in our body if we have a concern with the risk. The government can't determine our risk preferences for us. We should be able to make our own decisions. And you know what? Maybe we're going to make mistakes sometimes as individuals, but that's part of our evolutionary journey as spiritual beings, to be able to make mistakes sometimes and to be able to thrive. We need to have all of that range of possibility, whereas the government is going to define risk for us. So this is just a new thought process. How could that manifest? It could manifest through the building of communities that try to buy these principles and test it out. That's on the one side. So it's kind of the building of the new. And then there could be a collapsing of the old or the dissolution of the old, meaning that our current systems might start to become less tolerable to people. And maybe the politicians would have to change and say, look, I'm going to have to value liberty more because it's not working. People are not so happy with what I'm doing. There's also an effect in science known as the butterfly effect. And this was discovered by a meteorologist who was looking at weather predictions. And one of his decimal points was off by a tiny amount. Okay. So one of his early assumptions in the model was off by an amount he wouldn't have thought would have mattered. But his, his ultimate prediction, his weather prediction was not what he would have expected because of his initial assumption that was off by a tiny, tiny bit. The analogy mathematically 
is that when a butterfly flapping its wings in China, when it's doing that, it's, it moves around the air particles a tiny, tiny bit. But mathematically speaking, it results in a nonlinear change where there's a hurricane in New York as a result. So what I wonder is what's the nonlinear effect of people shifting their consciousness? How could that shift the external world in ways that we can't predict? And going back to this is, relates to our earlier conversation, psychokinesis. This is a phenomenon that has been scientifically validated many places, including Princeton, millions of trials where when people put their attention to something, the physical reality shifts. And I'll, just to give context, the classic study uses machines, computers, they're called random number generators, and the machines generally spit out zeros and ones in a random fashion. And over time, it approaches 50-50, 50% ones, 50% zeros. So the scientists at Princeton, including the former dean of engineering, they had this lab for almost 30 years at Princeton, they would ask people to put their mental intention to the machine to try to make it produce more ones and zeros. And what do they find is that it's a tiny, tiny effect, but statistically, people are able to shift the behavior of these machines where it's not random. And on a global scale, it's called the Global Consciousness Project. These same, some of the same researchers, Dr. Roger Nelson, Brenda Dunn, they set up machines all over the world and they look at what happens during a major event like 9-11, something where there's, people are emotionally drawn in a certain direction. And they find that these machines change in a non-random fashion. So they're not fully 50-50 anymore in a statistically significant manner. What does all this suggest? that the state of our consciousness shifts our external reality, which makes sense. If everything is consciousness, then the direction of our consciousness is going to change the direction of our physical reality. And that's a long way of answering your question. How do I see this changing? I don't know the how, but I think I, the initial steps start with the shift in our consciousness, and then it will manifest in different ways, where maybe we get the impulse. We tap into that field of intelligence, that stream, where it says, hmm, I should write a book about this, or I should start a business that is free in this way. And we all contribute in our own way to build hopefully a better society. I think I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, my work on my last book on Scary Smart is exactly the same. I don't look at politics. I look at technology and artificial intelligence and how artificial intelligence is shifting our future potential so significantly. And I'm saying the answer is not in more technology. The answer is not in control. It's not in regulation. It's in shifting our consciousness. It is in becoming the custodians of the future of ethics, if you want, so that tiny changes, incremental changes add up to butterfly effects, then add up to hurricanes that actually change the system. I could not agree with you more. I have to say, though, I'm almost certain our listeners, just like I am, are completely puzzled by this because it's quite interesting, as you stated so simply, that yes, it is inherently oppressive. So interesting when you think <laughs> about it, especially if you're not an Egyptian citizen. So brave of you to say that. I have seen that growing up, but to think that the system in general is inherently oppressive is quite an eye-opening observation. It definitely is something that's worth worthy of investigating. Well, I'm glad you, you mentioned the difference in perception based upon where one grew up. That's very important because I grew up in America and grew up with so many people who lived here. And we've only known one thing, which is America is, the, is a free country and people are very proud of that. And people have a right to be proud of that, I think. But if you grew up in a more oppressive place where government is the predator rather than the protector, people in Cuba, for example, will speak about this openly to the extent that they can. There's a different perspective. They're much more skeptical when the government says, we're going to do this for you. The paradigm shift for me is when the government says, well, we're just going to take away your rights and it's for your safety. 
Yeah. It's an excuse to take away rights. So it's really about, from a spiritual lens, people talk about the wolf in sheep's clothing. It's a discernment. Is this person looking out for my best interests, or are they just saying what I want to hear? You're going to fall for it. And as American citizens and other places where you've been technically free, or you've been thinking you've been free, having that shift is really helpful. Otherwise, we might fall for tricks that many others have in the past. I would leave it at that. I think that is an invitation for everyone listening to think through this. This is definitely not our typical slow-mo conversation, even though I am completely with Mark. This is an invitation to slow down and look at the bigger picture, the bigger picture of the systems that we have put in place that do not take our values and our spiritual nature into consideration and how those systems, as they have not been designed for the beings that we actually are, over time are manifesting impact that is perhaps not what we need. And that the answer, interestingly, is found in being true to our spiritual nature, to upgrade our consciousness in a way that allows us to demand a system that fits the consciousness of enlightened beings, if you want. Mark, it's always a joy. I mean, I I think we should uh, have like a weekly conversation at you <laughs> and I. Maybe we record them and we let the others listen to them or we just have them yeah. anyway. And I, I'm so grateful that you took this brave decision to write about a different topic. Can't wait to read what you're going to write next. So uh, I don't know what it will be. I can't even guess, but uh, I definitely am an avid reader of your work. I encourage everyone to read Mark's work as well and listen to his podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's always a joy. Thank you, Mo. I, I always enjoy chatting with you. And I thank your listeners as well. If you've tuned in for this long, I would just say that if these are new ideas to you, it takes time for them to marinate. I know. I would second that. This is probably why I said, okay, let's stop here and let you think about them. Everyone, thank you so much for joining us. Please let me know what you think. Share with me and Mark your opinions on this. I think this is a very timely topic that requires us to reflect and contemplate. Take a bit of time to slow down and look at this and the other bigger pictures. We're approaching Christmas, New Year, so I'm wishing everyone happy holidays. But at the same time, remember, this truly is the time for reflection. Spend the last week of the year and perhaps the first week of next year to ask yourself what really matters and what you want to work on. Thank you all for giving me the opportunity to make such amazing friends and have such wonderful conversations as I share them with you. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.